This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Linda K. Klein, author of the book Pure, Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. This is a phenomenal book that I think all members of the XV community should read. Through this interview, we talk about Linda's life, her book, and in a first ever for the podcast, I solicited questions from the Facebook group and was able to ask her those as well. Linda and I will both be featured in this weekend's upcoming special feature from CBS Religion, which airs on all CBS platforms this Sunday, December 2nd. That feature is called Deconstructing My Religion, and I'm very excited to see how it turned out. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain. You can follow the show at Pod on Twitter and Instagram. And you can join the Facebook group by searching for Exvangelical on Facebook. If you enjoy the show and want to support it, here are a few easy ways you can do that. First, you could buy a shirt over at exvangelicalpodcast.com slash shop. You could leave a review or a star rating on Apple Podcasts. Tell someone else about the show. Um, If you know someone that is starting to question what they've learned in the evangelical church or is struggling with some of the teachings that they received or if they had a really negative experience and are looking for other stories of people who have gone through similar things, please let them know about this podcast let them know about the exvangelical hashtag on Twitter, the Facebook group, any sort of resource that we can provide to someone that is going through these issues right now is what's important. So please do that and please use this podcast as a resource yourself as well. And finally, if you want to support the work of the show financially, you can do so via Patreon at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. All right, uh, that is it for my preamble here. I am very excited to share this interview with you. I'm also extremely excited to see how the special turns out, and we'll be sharing more about that as it uh, goes on in the coming week and everything. So, all right, let's get into it. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Exvangelical. My guest this week is Linda K. Klein. She is the author of the new memoir, Pure. Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. Welcome to the show, Linda. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on. Um, I am. I was absolutely thrilled to read your book. I actually listened to the audiobook, and I have to commend you. Your performance and your delivery is just really, really good. <laughs> like, um, it, it was one of the more engaging and sort of just expressive uh audiobooks that i've listened to in a while um so so uh it it was a really great performance and your book is is very good and i'm very very happy to to be here talking to you about it today well you you know you know from reading the book that i had wanted to be an actress 
So <laughs> right. this, is, this is my great chance to, yeah. uh, to do a performance. And it was funny because in the audiobook taping, they, um, the recorders basically told me two things. They were like, one, you're doing a really excellent job. Like in comparison to some folks we've worked with, you're doing a really excellent job. And two, you're, uh, you're also really extreme in your uh, worry about whether or not you're doing an excellent job, <laughs> which I think, which I think says a lot about me. They were yeah. like, you're doing really great. And also you're like way too concerned about it. Like you're not doing horribly, please. Just, yeah. Just yeah. Continue. <laughs> yeah. you I mean, your book is, is structured in, in a way that's, that is about interviews and you really do capture people's individual voices in the way you perform it. So I oh, thought that was really, really, really great. And I, I, Recommend the, both the book and the audiobook to everyone, of course, that's listening now. Um, but I did want to mention that up top because I really enjoyed listening to you read your own book. Where I'd like to start our conversation tonight, today, though, is um, getting a little bit of background about you and what your sort of initial experience was with religion and how those early years sort of formed you and what sort of church environment you were in and, and at a younger age as well as to that pivotal period that we're going to talk about a lot as far as youth group age and all of that. Yeah. Well, you know, so I actually didn't grow up evangelical. I actually grew up attending an Episcopalian church with my family. And um, I had this kind of unique experience where my mom was really evangelical. She had been born again right around the time of my birth and had been listening to the evangelical Christian radio station and reading the books and had a lot of evangelical friends. So she had, she had really taught me uh, uniquely, because I'm much younger than my brother and my sister, um, you know, uh, a way of faith and a way of spirituality that was very evangelical in nature. Mm -hmm. And so the two of us had this, you know, I sometimes say we had this evangelical community of two. And, uh, and then when I was 13 and I had this altar call born again experience, um, you know, that, that was, uh, a big deal for me, but also in many ways, um, you know, didn't feel entirely new. In fact, it felt very, very familiar because mm -hmm. here was a group of people who were talking about God and about a personal relationship with Jesus, um, you know, and all these things that I had learned about from my mom. Um, but, you know, here it was an entire community talking this way. Yeah. Yeah. That, that resonates a lot <laughs> with me. I actually grew up going to a United Methodist church, but then um, ended up finding a pretty evangelical youth group that was inside a, you know, a sort of uh, inside a, a United Methodist church, but very, very evangelical. So that, mm -hmm. <laughs> that sort of resonates. I, and I think that's a really interesting sort of thing. Just um, generally the evangelicalism can sort of, uh, be invasive <laughs> in in other traditions sometimes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My, my brother was born again within the evangelical or within the Episcopalian church that we mm -hmm. grew up in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so what was your, when you, whenever you had your own sort of individual conversion experience and everything, um, was this in a youth group setting or a retreat or, or, or what was that like for you? that initial sort of conversion and becoming zealous, so to speak. 
Yeah. So I would say that my entry into the community was with zeal and passion because my entry was with this born again experience, Mm -hmm. um, a big altar call in a big church after a Christmas play um, that was built up to this moment, this moment to invite people to give their their hearts and lives to Christ. Um, But the months after that altar call, you know, nothing really happened. My life didn't really change. Um, I had had this incredibly powerful spiritual experience, um, but I didn't really know what to do with it. And then I went to a youth group retreat that was uh, at the evangelical church down the block, a different church from the one where I had actually been born again. Mm-hmm. And and it was there that I really found community around this experience. And And I would say in many ways, that's when I that's when I became an evangelical Christian. Mm. Um, you know, it wasn't the moment that I was born again. It was the moment that I, I became part of a, what I now see was, um, you know, not just a community, but a movement, uh, that I quickly became exposed to being much larger than me or than my youth group. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's, that's a great way of putting that. Um, and I, yeah, and community is a really is a really strong thing too. It's a very strong sort of magnetic thing. Um, I I was pulled into a youth group because I had moved recently in high school, and that sort of was was what gave me community was that youth group. So for you, um, was youth group where you really started to first encounter purity culture and gender norms, and even though. We even though my audience knows sort of what purity culture is just by that term, if you wouldn't mind sort of giving a definition of that as well, that'd be great. Sure. Yeah, I hadn't really encountered purity culture before. And I think one of the reasons I hadn't encountered it before was because I was 13 when I joined the Evangelical Christian Church. So that was really a time that I think many people are being exposed for the first time to the sexual expectations of their world. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say purity culture, what I'm referring to is, uh, is this combination of uh, complementarian gender teachings, this idea that men are stereotypically masculine men who are also the leaders, particularly mm-hmm. in the church and the home, and women are stereotypically feminine uh, women who are followers, particularly in the church and the home, and that there are certain uh, sexual expectations that both of them have as well, which uh, which also vary, um, though there are similarities. Um, the core similarity being um, this idea of purity, that everybody is either pure or impure, mm-hmm. um, and, and that that is determined by other people's opinions of your sexual uh, life, your sexual motivations, your sexual choices. Um, And if you're a girl or woman, the thing that's particularly unique within the community uh, teachings is that you can be shamed as impure, not only for your own sexual thoughts and feelings and choices, but also for the sexual thoughts and feelings and behaviors of others toward you, Hmm. which you're said to inspire by how you walk or how you talk or how you dress. So that's what I mean when I say purity culture. Mm, mm-hmm. And <clears throat> what were the sorts of messages that you personally heard in your youth group around uh, purity culture and the sorts of expectations that, that youth groups put on young uh, boys and girls about their, about, their sec- about their bodies and about themselves as they sort of age into their 
sexuality and and all the sorts of complexities that that involves? Oh, gosh, there are just too many to count. But I think that the phrase that I heard the most often or certainly the one that sticks with me the most um, is the many number of times that I was pulled aside and called a stumbling block. Mm. And that that just really hit me every time it happened because it felt at once really unfair um, and problematic. You know, even as a young person, I was like, you know, you're calling me a thing over which a man or a boy trips, right? Because of, because you don't like um, how, how the length of my skirt or how the, the width of my um, uh, tank top straps or what have you. So it felt at once really, uh, problematic and upsetting. And I remember it because I was so upset by it even then. And yet at the same time, it felt, uh, it, it got inside of me in a way that, um, that, that overrode the, the logic I had around it being problematic. Right. right. Um, so, so at the same time, I also accepted it. Right. So I would logic through, oh, gosh, this is absolutely inappropriate. And I can't believe anyone is saying this. And then deep down, I would be like, oh, what if they're right? They're probably right. You know, I probably am this uh, this threat, this bad thing that if I can just be better, you know, if I can just be pure, then I can finally be the good Christian that I'm giving everything to try to be and just yet never seem to get right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And your the, the recollections that you share of your, your time in high school and afterwards, they were so moving and they both the ones you shared and the ones from your interviewees, as far as these sort of just heightened uh, bodily awareness that you have, that you had at the time um, and just how self-conscious you were you do have such a good job of sort of communicating how constant that is. And it wasn't mm. easy for me to, to listen to because it reminded me of my own sort of high school relationship that was tainted by the same sort of thing. Um, mm. you know, um, but, but, uh, but you do such a very good job in the book of, of, of expressing that and how, how deeply unfair that is and how unhelpful it is to someone trying to learn these things on their own and being given such a, um, such a high standard that's impossible to meet. Yeah. And I think the thing that really, you know, you'll understand this, the thing that really, uh, that people who didn't grow up within this community, maybe, um, you know, don't understand in the same way that you and I and your listeners do is it, 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 when I would get pulled aside, it was always in moments when I didn't think I was doing anything wrong, mm. right? It was mm-hmm. when I was having fun with my friends or when I was, you know, at a Bible study um, or when I was at a prayer circle, you know, doing things that at the very, you know, worst were seemed neutral <laughs> and at the very best were expressions of my deep, deep love and commitment to this community and to this faith. Mm-hmm. And so it always caught me off guard, right? It always caught me off, off guard to be in a moment like that um, and, and to then be pulled aside and be like, eh, you thought you were doing well, but, <laughs> but actually you are a deep, dangerous threat and, uh, and um, are going to cause your brothers to stumble. And, um, 
you know, and, and that, that sort of being caught off guard is I think what created the kind of anxiety that ended up staying with me much later into life. Um, I think if I had been doing things knowingly, um, and, and then had been punished for them, I, I wouldn't have had the same anxiety, um, around looking around over my shoulder and wondering, um, when I was going to be told that I was bad or impure, um, you know, which took a very long time to go away. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, one of your descriptions that really stuck with me is this description of evangelicalism as like this hand that held you and then it tried to, then it began sort of squeezing you. And I thought that was such a, an apt description of this sort of experience. And I think it really speaks to how sort of constrictive evangelicalism becomes over time if you don't, partic- if you don't meet a particular mold. And 99% of people don't fit in the mold. <laughs> so, uh, so can you sort of elaborate on that and, and sort of what, you, what that, sort of, that sort of squeezing was like as you reached your sort of college years and, and everything as you began to process this and sort of realize that you were, you were rejecting this, this impossible standard of purity culture that was given to you? Mm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, it, I really experienced it as a very slow squeezing because in the early days, maybe it was because I was so young or maybe it was because I was a new Christian, I really didn't feel squeezed. I really felt held. You know, mm-hmm. I really felt supported and, um, and felt like I had plenty of room to stretch and grow and lead. You know, I was put into leadership positions. And so I really felt empowered in a lot of ways. And it really wasn't until I started to, um, to become a little bit older, to see my body really flesh out, um, and to see my personality begin to flesh out. You know, I'm a, you know, like I said, I wanted to be an actress. I'm a, you know, I have some, um, some flamboyance to my personality, if you will. Um, you know, so, so even that was, I think, seen through a sexual lens, um, or at the very least, you know, through an inappropriate, um, for a good demure woman lens. Um, you know, so it was really, as I started to emerge as a full person, um, as a full identity, that it became obvious all the ways that I, I wasn't living up to or down to or to the side to, <laughs> you know, the expectations that were there for me. Um, and, uh, and so, so that's when I started to feel the squeezing. I started to feel the squeezing and I started to try to make myself smaller, to make myself mm. more, more demure, to make myself um, less, uh, less noticeable, um, my body less noticeable, um, you know, and it just didn't work. You know, it's just not me. I, I never started wearing, you know, uh, skirts down to my ankles. Cause I remember when I would, would wear them on occasion, um, you know, I, it felt restricting. I didn't like the way that, that it felt to, you know, try to run and swing. And, um, uh, you know, I, I've always been very, like playful, right? And I didn't like the way it felt to to be alive in the world right. when I had all that fabric over my legs, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, so it just didn't work. Becoming small just didn't work for me. Mm. And um and so that's when I really started to feel myself um squeezed to the point where eventually um you know the metaphor that I use in the book is that I I was squeezed out of the hand I sort of came out um you know between the thumb and the forefinger <laughs> in a big plop and sort of dropped to the floor mm-hmm. 
Throughout this process, what what led you to wanting to write this book, and how did it sort of take form? Because this, I mean, this is definitely a labor of of both love and intense sort of introspection into your own life and into a community that that was a place of of comfort for you for a time, uh, and did have a big part of your identity. Um, so, what sort of motivated you to to start this project? And write this book. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you know, there I am on the. If we'll follow the metaphor of sort of, you know, having been squeezed through the thumb and the forefinger and dropped onto the floor, right? So there I am on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> if the hand is grace, right? You know, having fallen from grace, and I was um, scared in a lot of ways because I had lost my community. I thought. I had lost my um, God, potentially. I had lost my purpose, certainly. Um, You know, I'd lost so many things. Mm -hmm. But I was under the impression that I would would at least now be free to be who I was. Yeah. And the thing that happened next um, was scarier yet, and that was realizing that I wasn't. It was realizing that I had so deeply internalized the sexual shaming that I had received growing up, a sexual shaming that I had disagreed with the whole time. Right. (laughs) You know, I had so deeply internalized it that now I had a sexual shame and fear and anxiety that lived in me. And I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I couldn't separate myself from it, uh, you know, the way that I used to be able to when other people were telling me, um, you know, that I was shameful and I was able to say to them or to myself about them, well, that's what you think, but I think something different. Now all those voices lived inside of me Mm. and I didn't know how to contend with that. And that was scary, that realization that I wasn't free. You know, and I've done a lot of research, as, as, as you know, since then. And one of the things that I've come across um, is uh, something called Hebb's axiom, which is an adage in neurobiology that teaches neurons that fire together, wire together. Mm. So basically, if two neural circuits, such as, in this case, sexuality and shame, um, are fired together simultaneously often enough, Um, eventually firing the neural circuit for one will automatically activate the neural circuit for the other. So I believe that having been sexually shamed so many times growing up and having learned about sex and learned about the body via this very shaming idea of purity or impurity, Mm. you know, people being defined uh, in their totality you know, via this shaming frame of good or bad, um, worthy or unworthy, pure or impure, you know, created a sex shame brain trap. So here I was, you know, in my, in my early twenties now, um, trapped by this brain trap and feeling completely alone because now I'm in a secular world. I've, I've left the evangelical world. I'm in a secular world. I'm struggling to 
decide whether or not I'm allowed to still reach out to God. Um, I'm struggling with what to call myself now, um, you know, and, and there's nobody around me who's going through the same thing as me. Um, and I spent about, about five years or so, um, you know, in that state of trying to fix myself, uh, and, and really having, um, not a whole lot of luck. And during those years, a lot of that shame and fear and anxiety was manifesting in my body in ways that mimicked um, PTSD, which was really scary because, you know, that made me feel completely like broken, like something was wrong with me. And it really wasn't until uh, I started to actually call up the girlfriends that I've been raised with in my evangelical youth group and to tell some of them what I was experiencing that I started to realize that I wasn't alone because many of them were sharing with me very, very similar stories from their own lives. Mm -hmm. And that really floored me because because some of them were actually um, had taken entirely different life paths. You know, some of them were still evangelical, um, you know, whereas I had left. Some of them um, were virgins or had waited to have sex um, before until marriage or in some cases had waited to have their first kiss until marriage and, um, you know, had done everything just the way that they were supposed to within the community, um, whereas others had had or were having sex before marriage. And yet there were people in all these categories who who were telling me stories that that reflected the secret truth of my life. Yeah. And that was the big aha. And what became the beginning of, you know, this 12-year journey that became the book, you know, it started out with me going back to my hometown, calling up all my girlfriends in my my uh, hometown who were still, you know, around or answering their phone at the time <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and doing interviews with them in, you know, around town and coffee shops and in living rooms and in bars and and uh, and then that, you know, began uh, a tour around the country talking to people who were raised in communities like mine. I grew up in the Midwest in an, uh, a white American evangelical church, pretty ma- middle middle of the road um, evangelicalism, um, not, you know, super extreme. Um, and uh, so I started interviewing people who were raised in, in communities like mine as girls around the country and just kept hearing these same stories over and over and over again. And somewhere along that journey, it became clear that this was going to be a book. And it it wasn't clear at the beginning. At the very beginning, when I first just went back to my hometown, I didn't know what I was going to do with these interviews. I I figured I was going to do something. A book seemed like a possibility, but I was really doing the interviews more to heal myself than anything else. Mm. And, And it wasn't really until I was about halfway through the journey um, that it became clear that that a book was what this needed to be because um, because it didn't make sense for for me to do other things that I had been considering like starting an organization where people could hear these stories from one another in person because at the time um, you know this was so unheard of people just weren't talking about purity culture so um, so bringing people together you know we weren't ready yet to be brought together yeah. um, you know. We needed to bring the stories out in some other way first before we could start to um, be a little bit more public. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it it it's definitely very apparent from your book that it that it was you know a very very intense sort of journey and a lot of work went into this. And it it is I think this is the you know this is the sort of book that that communities like Exvangelical need because it's it speaks so directly to 
so directly to so many people's experience. Um, I, w- I want to talk more about the book in particular. One of the places where I wanted to start is you have a really great phrase. Um, I think in an earlier part of your book where you say that pur- purity is a proxy for sameness, um, for just everyone being the same. And um, I'd love to sort of hear what, what, what that really means and meant for especially women and girls in evangelical circles and why sameness is held up as the standard through this term of purity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I just was thinking about um, other, other ways that we use the word purity and when we use it uh, in reference to human beings, you know, we're almost always using it in reference to wanting to make people the same and wanting to keep out those who are not the same. Um, you know, racial purity, ethnic purity, ethnic cleansing, right? Um, you know, and in many ways, this this is a very similar logic, uh, you know, that comes from this idea that there is a certain type of person that is good. That is the pure the pure version of the person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the pure version of, of a human that we are going to deem as worthy and good and everyone else is unworthy and bad. And, um, you know, and so this, this purity teaching that we grew up with um, really had to do with uh, being a good woman and, you know, historically a good white woman, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and these, these concepts, I think, you know, came together historically before, before, um, the purity movement of the 1990s. I'm not talking about the purity movement. I'm talking about older, um, you know, the, those things have been twinned for a long time in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and so this idea of people being the same is, is just a, uh, something that, I think we need to really contend with because like you said, you know, one of the reasons that 99.9% of, of, of the people don't fit into the expectations of the community or 99%, whatever you had said earlier mm-hmm. is because, is because, you know, um, it's because we're all different, <laughs> right? <Yeah. laughs> you know, and, um, and if we're trying to, to create purity, we're trying to create a sameness that doesn't allow for the full humanity of, um, of humankind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another sort of element that, that was, that was common in a lot of your conversations that you share in the book is that, that a number of women chose to numb themselves, um, to, because they were tormented by fear and anxiety. Uh, one, uh, one story you share is about a woman who literally, um, because she was she worked for, like, I believe, a Christian college, she looked for recording devices that she thought might be placed around her home um, because she felt that she was so, would be under such scrutiny that that her employer would go to that degree. I was just so sort of sort of just struck again by by those stories and by by those conversations. Um, that that people chose because of the messaging they received, they chose numbness um, over feeling and being human. Um, and I'm 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 curious both 
how how you receive those stories, how how you experience similar things, as well as what you think might uh, might be a way that we we can sort of break this, you know, uh, break this cycle, um, and and sort of pave a new path forward so that we don't pass this on to subsequent generations. Mm. Yeah, feelings are such an interesting topic in this community because um, because feelings are why I joined in the first place because because of the opportunity for emotional um, spiritual experience. You know, I mean, when I was born again, that was a emotional spiritual experience, and um, and those are the types of experiences having those in community that kept me kept me there year after year. You know, um, so there is this there is this um, uh, not just acceptance but encouragement of extreme emotions, but only in certain places and in certain topics and in certain ways. Um, that is regulated by your gender and is regulated by the topic and all kinds of other things. And then there are a whole other set of things that we, um, that, you know, feelings are regulated in a totally different way where you can't have feelings, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you can't have sexual feelings. You can't, um, you know, have anger, um, particularly if you're a girl or a woman, um, you know, things like that. So, so you end up, you you end up making choices on your own feelings, not even your choices around behaviors, but you're on your own feelings based on what other people deem being good or bad. You know, maybe exaggerating one feeling in one case and um, numbing another feeling in another case. It reminds me of what my interviewee Johnny said at one point. He says, um, you know, because of that, you learn to live from the surface. And um, meanwhile, there's this there's this depth, uh, there's this depth beneath the surface that I think the more we live from the surface, the, the more and more difficult it is sometimes to touch that depth, right? Right. It seems it's, it's like the feelings that we're not supposed to have just get deeper and deeper and deeper into the ocean inside of us. So, you know, one of the things that, um, I ask all of my interviewees, uh, you know, what word do you have for, readers who are going through, um, you know, some of the things that are talked about in this book. And there are a few things that they answered that came up repeatedly and among lots of different interviewees. And I, and I share those at the end of the book. And one of them is related to this. Um, and it's simple. It's, uh, know yourself. And when they said that, you know, that was sort of the, the recurring theme, but the specifics underneath that, um, were around knowing your feelings, for starters, know, just know and feel when you're upset, you know, know and feel when you're sad, Mm. you know, don't tell yourself, oh, you're not supposed to be sad. You're not supposed to feel that way. You know, you're not supposed to be upset. You're supposed to forgive your, you know, know and feel when you feel joy. Um, you know, don't shut it down by saying, oh, you're not supposed to enjoy this, or maybe you're experiencing too much joy, even if this is not a bad thing to feel joy about, but too much joy must be a sign that you're doing something hedonistic, right? You know, there's so (laughs) many ways, there's so many ways that we shut down our feelings quickly, 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 Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And, and this is not just true, of course, in this subculture, this is, you know, society wide. You know, I remember, I remember when I, um, 
uh, I was in my early 30s and I got an apartment. Uh, I was living alone. I think it was the first time I, oh no, it was the second time I'd lived alone. I think living alone is uh, is just always, every time I live alone, it's just an incredibly powerful experience for me. Um, and, um, and I just remember when I was living alone at this point in my early 30s, um, you know, I think I was 30, 31. Um, you know, it was just amazing to come home from a hard day at work and just cry and be like, I'm not going to stop myself from doing this because no one else is here to judge me. So I'm just going to, just going to cry as long <laughs> as I have to cry and just like feel this is such a, this is such a bad day, you know? Yeah. And I remember thinking this might be the first time I've ever given myself full permission to just feel my feelings. Like regardless of whether they are, not like judge them as good or bad. So anyway, so so I think the first step, I think the first step is um, is to even recognize them, and and then to when you recognize them, you know, uh, if you can, like zoom out of yourself enough to to have a little conversation with yourself and say like, okay, don't. What happens if you don't run from this? You know, like what happens if you actually feel this? And I think the more that we kind of dip down into that deep bottom of the ocean, you know, truth inside of us and, you know, and do the thing that we've been taught not to do, you know, feel what we feel, think what we think, believe what we believe, value what we value, not what we were told we were supposed to in any of these categories. And then and then don't die, <laughs> you know, the easier it gets to, to do again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really great. Um, I actually, uh, speaking of community, uh, there is an exvangelical Facebook group um, that's a, that's affiliated with the podcast. And it has lots of members. It has, as of right now, like over three thousand members. And I actually took the opportunity to ask them if they would have any questions for you. Um, so I have a handful, um, and some of these were sent to you beforehand. Um, but you can feel free to <laughs> take your time to respond to some of these. But I wanted, I, I did want to gather some questions, uh, and these have been anonymized from the group, um, and ask them to you if you don't mind. Please, yes, oh. I did not, I did not get to read them beforehand. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we're so we're going to be doing this uh, together. Okay, great. <laughs> All right. So the first one here is. Uh, in what ways does purity culture teach us explicitly or implicitly to see other women as our enemies or competition? So that, I gave you an easy one other to women. start. So that's from that's from a that's from a, a woman. That's from other. It says to see other women yes. as enemies or yes. So this this is from a, a woman in the group, but again, it's been anonymized. Wow, I mean, this is such a good question. Um, so I don't know. Let's 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 puzzle through it together. I wish I, I wish I had, I wish I had her here to say a little more about why, why she asked it and, and what her thoughts on it are on it, because it sounds like she has some, um, I mean, you know, there is something about this idea that every woman or girl knows what she's doing when it comes to men and boys that is baked into purity culture. Um, you know, how, what we talked about earlier around, um, you know, 
have learning that that men are um, are uh, sexually uh, weak when faced with the female flesh and vulnerable to the threat of our seduction, um, which our seduction, you know, is defined very broadly. It could be the seduction of our gregarious personality or the seduction of our um, uh, shorter than they would like skirt or whatever it is, right? Um, so there is this sort of overarching teaching about um, uh, this idea that women and women and girls are sort of um, out there knowingly trying to get the attention of men <laughs> um, that I think creates this kind of um, this kind of competition. I remember one time. I remember one time uh, we used to do this thing in my church um, retreats where at the end of the retreat, we would have late in the retreat, we would have a, um, a chapel service. And in the chapel service, you would be invited to pull people aside who you had held something against or who you needed to confess something to. Um, and then, you know, you would talk about it and they would forgive you and, you know, then you would be cleansed. Mm. And I remember one person approaching me and another um, uh, girl in youth group approaching me once at one of these retreat chapel experiences and pulling me aside and saying, I wanted to pull you inside and tell you that I've been harboring a lot of anger at you for the way that you are always flirting with the boys, particularly with this one boy <laughs> who's at this retreat. <laughs> And I wanted to confess that sin to you, which really felt like, you know, a very pointed <laughs> confession. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I said to her, you know, actually, that, that boy who you're talking about, um, you know, this, he wasn't a member of our youth group. He had been invited to the retreat by someone else. Um, so he was new. I said, well, actually, what you don't know is that that boy and I go to high school together and we're actually quite good friends and we hang out all the time. So I'm, I'm not actually... I'm not actually flirting with him. He, he's actually my good friend. You probably just didn't know that, right? <laughs> and um, and and I just remember her being like, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and um, and you know, I think in some ways, you know, perhaps this is a manifestation of of what this of what this teaching is of this idea that everyone is, you know, that women and girls are sort of walking around, <laughs> you know, trying to compete with one another for the attention of every man and boy. Um, you know, which may or may not, you know, be at all what <laughs> what somebody is doing, but but that but that does seem to be something that is embedded into purity culture. This notion that I think can get into get, can get into our heads. Yeah, yeah. Um, the next question is: How can women raised in purity culture come to accept for themselves and their partners a routine, natural? responses to other humans in the vicinity and B the possibility of seeking out visual stimulation via sexy images or videos. That one's a little loaded. Um, yeah, there's a lot there. There's a lot and, there. And, yeah. two, and, two, and two totally different. Okay. But so read the beginning part again. Yeah. How can women raised in purity culture come to accept for themselves and their partners, a routine, natural responses to other women and uh, excuse me, to other humans in the vicinity and B. Yeah. Okay. Wait. Let's pause there. Yeah, let's pause sure. there. Okay. So, n so healthy responses to other humans in the vicinity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I. I. So I think um, 
just sort of interjecting from the some of some of the um some of the male messaging, male oriented messaging in purity culture. There was a book called Every Man's Battle and Every Young Man's Battle. Yeah. Um yeah. I'm not sure if you came across those in your research. But I have, it, yeah. Yeah. So it sort of it's uh recommended that um men and boys take a sort of uh tactic basically called bouncing their eyes. So if they see someone that's attractive, they they would say that the first look is essentially uncontrollable. Um, you essentially are acknowledging the objective beauty or subjective or whatever, the beauty of someone. Um, but it's the second look that gets you in the, in trouble with, with sin and lust and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think that's, uh, so that's sort of what I'm bringing to bear in this is that understanding how male female relationships might work for people that have come out of, uh, purity culture, um, that Mm, this may be, this may be something that, that that some people in male female relationships struggle with is this sense yeah. of um when whether someone can acknowledge that another person is attractive if that makes sense <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah absolutely yeah you know it makes me think of um uh, I, I write about this in the book david dickerson who uh grew up evangelical um and talked on this american life um with a friend of his who grew up with him, who was a missionary, missionary son, as I recall. Um, and they were talking about this very thing. And, and the, the friend, um, David's friend was talking about how he was a cartoonist and whenever he would draw women below, below the neck, it'd always be sort of like this, like, it's not exactly a body because he had been trained not to look below the neck. Mm, You know, he'd been mm -hmm. trained to bounce his eyes. So he didn't really know how to draw a woman's body. (laughs) You know, he was just like, oh, there were like these floating heads, you know. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's an incredible thing. And I think that this this sort of um, this sort of uh, these kinds of teachings also create weird um, uh, dynamics within um, all kinds of relationships as well. You know, for example, the idea that um, a man and a woman can never be alone, right, that they could never um, have a meeting together. Mm-hmm. The Billy Graham rule. Right. right. The Billy Graham rule. Right. Or mm-hmm. the, you know, you know, all of those types of things are based on this idea that um, that that these normal these normal thoughts are going to uh, be the beginning of sending you down the slippery slope to sin. And um, and actually, you know, I think that that is in some ways a self-fulfilling prophecy, because when when you kind of hold those things up to such a height and you say, oh, if I'm even going to have this thought, <laughs> you know, then I'm going to go, oh, I'm just going like, to fall all the way down into, you know, sin. Um, you know, so now I have to be hyper vigilant to the point of total control or, you know, or it's all over. Yeah, I think I think in some ways it, it creates um, it creates it creates the conditions it's trying to prevent. Um, so. So yeah, so there is something really important about you know to 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 their question about really just being able to you know not be afraid of our humanness um, and and to and to just allow ourselves to uh, it kind of goes back to feeling your feelings right mm-hmm. 
know, if it's feeling attracted to someone or if it's feeling, um, uh, you know, feeling that this person is attractive or noticing that they have a body and that if you were to be a cartoonist, you would actually know what it looked like, right? <laughs> right. Um, you know, those things don't have to lead to you cheating on your partner with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they can be normal, um, natural, harmless things that exist. Like in the same way that you can let yourself, um, you know, cry when you feel sad, I think that there's a similar practice around, um, you know, allowing ourselves to have human interactions um, and to and to test slowly the waters and to see where those lines are. I think one of the things that's really hard for people when they come out of purity culture is that they don't know where the lines are. Mm, you yes. know, yeah, <laughs> right. Like you know, we were we've been taught so much about you know it's it's either this or that, and these are the only two options. That when people come out of it, you know, it's like oh oh my gosh, what what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate, and what is consent and what is not consent, and when should I compliment someone because it's just nice to, and when am I actually creeping them out because maybe they didn't want me to comment on that part of them or whatever. Right. You know, it, it feels like there's this you know this the unlearning leads to this period of learning where people I've seen it happen a lot of times where people have a lot of missteps, you know, um, and have to learn via trial and error. And, and I, myself, I, you know, I've, I've had some experiences that I wish that I hadn't had when I was learning what healthy, um, healthy experience actually looked like, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and I think it would have benefited me to have actually been talked to growing up about what healthy, uh, uh, relationship and sexual choices look like <laughs> instead of having to learn all of that via trial and error. Um, but you know, there, I think, I think ultimately, you know, baby steps, right. Um, you know, the more that we can, we can, um, maybe the same thing as, as we talked about with feelings, the more that we can like baby step our way into, um, every human experience <laughs> and, and test the waters and see how it feels. Um, you know, to, to actually notice someone in this case, you know, the, you know, extrapolating from the question, but, um, to actually notice someone and to, and to see, you know, to see if, uh, if we don't die and to see if, and just maybe the way we looked at them did make them uncomfortable. And now we learned that, you know? Um, so yeah, but I, but I mean, I think the question speaks to, and, and I think the second part of their question, too, around, you know, sexy images, like the question really speaks to this idea that um, of this deep, deep process of learning that has to go on when you leave a culture where there's no education. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we talked, you know, there was no sex education. We never talked about sex. We never talked about sexuality. We just talked about purity. We just right. talked about how good or bad you were. And... um and ultimately, you know, that leaves us with very little real information. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's very true. <laughs> um, moving on to the third question, if you're, if you're okay, we've got a, a few more here. Um, sure. What ways does, do you think could be taken to help lessen the damaging effects of purity culture and church communities? Mm. So this is something that I do talk about sometimes Um, to lessen the damage. Wait, let me make sure I'm hearing it right. To lessen the damage in church communities. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that church communities um, have two jobs ahead of them on this. 
Um, one is around healing the damage that's already been done. <laughs> because I think that if we skip that step, which I would assume many are going to be inclined to do, because that's what we do in society in general. <laughs> right. We're just like, Oops, we messed up. Never mind. Let's try this. Right. Um, you know, so. So the first thing that has to happen is that we need to heal the damage that's already been done and acknowledge the damage that's already been done. Because if we don't, what ends up happening is that we end up repeating the damage. Um, you know, so many of us, even outside of purity culture <clears throat> or outside of evangelical purity culture, because I would argue that our American society is a purity culture. Um, you know, so even in society at large, we learn a lot of these same messages, a lot of these same deeply shaming messages around sex in the body. So, um, so this idea that, um, that we can, having been raised with that, now suddenly teach someone something else, I think is entirely false. Because if we don't do, uh, if we don't do the deconstruction within ourselves and heal our own shame, um, you know, around these topics, then it's, we're going to re we're going to repeat it to the generation after us in how we treat people and how we talk about people and what we don't talk about in what we, um, what words we use, what words we don't use. Uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's going to show up, right? It, it's right. too baked into us. It's too baked into our society. It's too baked into our churches to not show up in the next generation if we don't heal, Mm -hmm. and take ownership for healing, you know, and I think the church needs to take ownership for healing, uh, and claim, um, claim the complicity and, mm -hmm. um, and take ownership in, in, uh, in claiming and healing. <clears throat> so anyway, so that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, is that we need to teach a different sexual ethic. Um, you know, the purity ethic, uh, is, is I think not, not a helpful one. Right. <laughs> Yeah. So I'm I'm a big fan of values-based uh, sexual ethics, uh, which are really more about relationships and how you treat people and how you treat yourself, including how you treat people and treat yourself when it comes to sex and sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, so the model that I often point to is the Our Whole Lives model, um, OWL, uh, which I think is a really great uh, sexuality education curricula um, curriculum, and it. It doesn't even describe itself as, as that. I think it says, um, or maybe it is, but it's it's something like, um, you know, life life lifelong sexuality education across a lifespan. But it doesn't even have the words. It's it's broader than that, right? Because it really is about um, it really is for chiefly about values, um, you know, and the importance of values and teaching people values and teaching people how to make decisions using values. And then layering onto that sexual information and then teaching people how to um, make values-based sexual information or sexual choices using that information. Mm -hmm. One of the next questions from, uh, from someone in the group is, how does fearing our male partner's natural sexuality cause us to also fear our own? <sighs> so this makes me think about how we are raised to believe that we don't have as as girls we don't have sexual inclinations mm -hmm. not strong ones anyway and and men and boys do and they are dangerous when unleashed 
And we are dangerous when we unleash them. (laughs) So it's a cycle, right? Right. Um, So I think that, you know, when you're taught, when you're taught that there is a, um, a dragon behind, you know, that, that door and that you are, you are the only one who, um, has the key to that door. You know, you come to, to distrust yourself and to worry about yourself, right? Because you are the one who unleashes the dragon. So the fear of the dragon creates the fear of the self. Like what happens? Am I, am I going to actually carry that key to that door? You know, um, Mm -hmm. because at the, the end of the day, you know, women and girls are sort of thought of as, you know, one of my interviewees says, um, uh, women learn that our bodies are evil. Men learn that our mind, that their minds are. Mm. So, um, so, so, you know, the bot, the woman's body becomes the key to the door that unleashes the like, you know, ravenous mind, <laughs> you know? So anyway, so, so I do think that this, that, that, that sequence of sh- that sequence of fear narratives you know, does link to this fear of male sexuality creates a fear of female sexuality because we're taught that female sexuality unleashes male sexuality in a way that is dangerous to us and to them. That's dangerous to everyone. Hmm. Yeah. I've actually never heard it phrased that way that, that men's minds are, are dangerous <laughs> and men's and women's bodies are dangerous. Um, I'm, that's gonna... She might have used the term evil, whatever she used, oh, yeah. but it really is spot on. It really is spot on around yeah. this, right? Yeah, that's going to stick with me for a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm going to be thinking about that tonight. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. You know, uh, you know, I, as you know, I, I, I think that men, um, many men have found it useful to read the book, but, you know, the book doesn't focus on men, as you know, and yet that particular line you know, I, I've had so many men at bookstore readings and other places come up to me and be like, that was the line. That was the line, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's, it's appropriate that, that the book does not center men. It, it's a completely appropriate. Um, and men should, should read your book. <laughs> it's, it's completely appropriate. I, I just, that, that, that line just, uh, did definitely impact me. Cause that, that does speak yeah. to, uh, yeah, just just because of the purity culture messaging of of men's, you know, spirit is willing, flesh is weak, sort of. That's what you receive, so you got to guard your mind to control your body. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyways, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. the final question from the group here is uh, in line with I think it was some of the things you've you've asked you've mentioned about feeling your feelings. Um, the final question here is what harm comes from suppressing our attraction to non-husband men, women, or both? You know, I don't think we, I don't think that we get to turn off just a one part of ourselves and have it still be on in other parts. Mm-hmm. I just don't think our, I just don't think we work that way, you know? Um, and I've tried you know, to, to, uh, so I'll say something, you know, um, a little more personal. So when I first got married, I remember, you know, having this knee jerk reaction to getting married that I didn't even realize I had, but was totally knee jerk where I, um, 
suddenly didn't want to make eye contact with, uh, with male strangers anymore. Like all of a sudden I went from being the friendly person on the subway who was chatting with everyone, you know, regardless of, of gender and, you know, not, I mean, not all the time because it is the subway, but, um, but you know, I, I'm, I'm a friendly, friendly person. And I remember when I first got married, I, I was like, I put down like a door that was like, <laughs> I was like, you will not make eye contact for more than half a second with that person. If he looks at you, you will look away. <laughs> you know, you are protecting this marriage. Right. And, um, and, and I don't think it was good. I don't think it was good for me. Um, and for my, uh, energy flow in general. Right. Um, you know, it, it ended up like shutting down my, um, my natural, my natural being. Um, you know, I think, I think when we, I think when we live in that kind of, um, when we try to regulate it in that way, it just doesn't work. And I remember, you know, after a couple of months being like, you know, I, I actually think in order for me to continue to be effervescent and, you know, um, full of life with my husband, I need to not be afraid of making eye contact on contact with somebody on the subway. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. It's not a, it's not a thing, you know, <laughs> like, you know, like it, it's nice to have someone smile at you every once in a while when you're having a bad day. So like, you know, bring it down a notch, you know, and, and, you know, let yourself, let yourself like, let yourself be a human being because it's not, it's not going to hurt your marriage. It's not going to hurt your marriage, <laughs> you know? Um, so I, so anyway, I thought, I just thought that was interesting that after all these years that crop that came up for me when I got married. Right. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so this sort of teaching around protecting, um, you know, I, I had, I had, uh, I had moved past it, but then when I got married, all of a sudden it, it, it came in full force, right? That all of a sudden now I need to play by all these rules and protect, protect us from a threat that, that, um, that I don't need to worry about because, because, because uh, eye contact rarely turns into a threat, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, although again, in the subway, sometimes it does. So <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's, you need to be careful with some of your eye contact in the subway. Um, <laughs> So, so anyway, I, I don't even remember why I brought it up except to say, except to say that I think that that's, um, I think that that's an, that's something that we are taught, um, to be, to be really protective. And I don't think that it actually, um, uh, that it actually does us a lot of favors. I mean, I think that we can, I think that we can end up shutting down parts of ourselves that we want to be open to our partners that we want to be open to our God, that we want to be open to ourselves. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about, and I, and I don't think this person asking the question is talking about, I'm not talking about like, you know, you know, doing anything that actually threatens um, a relationship. But, um, but I think that this question is being asked out of this hypervigilance that we're taught that, um, that ends up, that ends up, uh, that ends up, uh, shutting down parts of the self. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, well, yeah, this, I could, I feel, I feel like this, you know, we could, we could talk about this forever, um, but I do want to be respectful for your, of your time. You, you 
very graciously have given me uh, some of your time on a Friday evening uh, to talk about this. And I want to thank you so much for both coming on the show and talking to me for about your book for a little bit and also for writing the book. Uh, and as you mentioned before, it is very much about uh, a women's experience and girls' experience and purity culture. Uh, but I recommend everyone um, that has lived in evangelicalism, lived in youth group culture in the 90s and 2000s and and the present uh, to read this because uh, because it speaks so well to so many different aspects of that experience. And I'm very thankful that, that you're out there writing and, and talking about this. Um, where can people find the book? Where can people find you online? Well, you can find the book uh, at most bookstores now, I think. And if you go to your bookstore and they don't have it, ask them to order it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, but the um, uh, the place to find me online is I have a website, which is Linda, uh, Linda K. Klein. So Linda, K-A-Y-K-L-E-I-N at uh, uh, .com. And then, um, and then you can also actually, if you're interested in some of the community work that I'm doing uh, to help us to build community around this issue and, and um, uh, through, through story, really, and, and creating spaces for people to come into story exchange around these topics, uh, there's a section on my website that talks about it, or you can also learn more at breakfreetogether.org. Great, great. Linda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm so glad to, to have been here. 